Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, and today we're very fortunate to be joined by the economist Thomas Piketty, professor at the Paris School of Economics and a director of the School of Advanced Studies in Social Sciences. As many of our listeners will know, Professor Piketty's research focuses on wealth and income inequality, and he remains most famous for his 2014 bestseller, Capital in the 21st Century, the English translation published by Belknap Press, an imprint of Harvard University Press. That book, built on historical data going back to the Industrial Revolution and focused primarily on Western countries, their concentrations of wealth and how inequality dovetails with our economic model. Paul Krugman, the New York Times economist, described the book as the most important book of the year and maybe of the decade. The professor's latest book out last month with the same publisher, Capital and Ideology, expands the regional coverage of its comparative historical analysis and the interdisciplinary breadth of its argument that inequality is neither economic nor technological, it is ideological and political. Professor Piketty, uh, Thomas, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Sure, my pleasure. Hey, before we dive into your latest thesis, many of us would be interested in hearing about your academic influences and, and just a bit of background that led to capital in the 21st century and now capital and ideology. Right. Well, I guess... You know, so so there's been six years between the two books and uh, a lot of uh, traveling, a lot of thinking, a lot of new research. And, well, let me say, I, I, you know, I think Capital and Ideology is a much more interesting book than Capital in the 21st century. I think, uh, you know, I'm making progress over time and uh, hopefully I will keep uh, making progress. I guess there are several limitations of capital in the 21st century which i which i came to realize more clearly uh, uh, after all the discussion i i was very fortunate to have uh, um, uh, after the, the release of this first book the probably the most two important limitations are first that you know capital in the 21st century was was too much uh, western centered and and next that it did not uh, Focus enough on the political and ideological aspect of of, uh, of inequality and, and the transformation of inequality regime. So, in a way, you know, I have moved more and more into the the political science aspect, the poli- political ideology aspect of inequality, uh, a little bit away from uh, sort of pure economics. And and uh, I I think, uh, you know, the, the account I provide in this new book of uh, uh, the evolution of inequality is both richer and, and more uh, uh, accurate. And as, as you were summarizing, you know, one of the main uh, conclusions is that 
if you want to account for this very large uh, diversity of trajectories that we observe across time over societies, especially, you know, taking a very global perspective and not only looking at the Western world, you, you see the, the driving force of inequality as being primarily political, ideological, you you have very fast transformation of inequality regime uh, across time over countries, you know, which which are very difficult to explain just on the basis of economic or technological forces. Uh, crises like including, you know, social crises, financial crises, revolution like the French Revolution or the Bolshevik Revolution or other revolutionary events, financial crises, maybe sanitary crises like the one we have today have a big impact on the transformation of uh, dominant views about the economy, about how to regulate the economy, and ultimately about the structure of inequality in society. And this long uh, historical process will uh, continue uh, in the future. And I think, you know, one, I think one of the best ways to prepare ourselves for this is to look at this rich history, uh, which is what I invite the readers to do in my uh, in my new book. Hey, you wrote about um, historical ruptures that lead to uh, switch points. Do you feel like the world is experiencing one now? Are are we are our current historical moment? Is this pandemic a kind of switch point? Do you think it it could, but but to be honest, we 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 don't know at this stage, and I think it's a bit too early to talk about the you know. The long-term impact, you know, the, the priority at this stage is just to try to avoid a complete, uh, uh, you know, complete uh, apocalyptic uh, evolution in terms of number of deaths. And, and, you know, at this stage, we really don't know, you know, where this is going to last, how, how, you know, where this is going to end. You know, I'm particularly concerned, you know, in, in, uh, in the south uh, part of the world and the poorest country of the world, uh, you know, having this big lockdown uh, is not going to work for very long because, you know, people don't have a safety net in India or in Africa and they can't, uh, they can't stay home for very long. They will have to go out very fast and get, and get work and get money and get food and 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 uh, so you know in principle this could be an opportunity to to accelerate the, the development for instance of safety net and, and minimum income scheme in countries like india or in, in west africa so as to to you know to make uh, uh, the, the fight against the virus uh, sustainable and not come at the cost of a huge loss of income and huge loss in in living condition which could have uh, terrible consequences especially coming together with uh, with uh, with the virus so okay at this stage you know there is there are urgent issues and 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 how to 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 try to avoid the, the enormous increase in the in the casualties and, and and this is really the priority now whether this will have a lasting impact on other dimensions of, uh, you know, how we regulate the economy. I, I would like this to be true, but, you know, I, I think it's a bit, uh, a bit too early to say. One general lesson that I, I stress in my book is that crises, you know, sometimes are necessary to, to get uh, the change in ideology that, that, that is needed, but they are never uh, sufficient, you know, in the sense that crises can also lead 
to uh, you know sometimes business as usual after the crisis can also uh, you know not lead to to sometimes you know it can also lead to the reinforcement of uh, uh, nationalism or you know identity politics uh, you know we we really don't know at this stage and I think it's uh, sure. you know it's I think it's a good time you know we we unfortunately most of us you know we can't do much. Uh, Right now, apart from staying at home and following the rules uh, uh, that have been set by the by the uh, health uh, authorities, and and you know, I think it's a good time certainly to think about the future. I think it's a good time to read. Uh, sorry that my book is a little long, but I think you know it's very readable, and uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a good time you know certainly to reflect and think about the past and about the future. Sure, and as a way into into your book, and and it is a it is a long book for sure. Um, hey, what do you mean when you say uh, every human society must justify its inequalities? Well, because you know humans need to 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 give meaning and to give sense to their existence and to their social existence and to the societies in which they live. So in every human societies, you know, you, you have inequalities, of course, you, you never have perfect equality and you will never have perfect equality. But what's interesting is that people need to tell stories, to tell narratives about why, you know, these inequalities are uh, justified. So it, you will never find a, a society where, you know, the rich will simply say, you know, okay, we are rich, you're poor, and, you know, that's life, and, and you're here to work for us. You know, it's always more sophisticated. So the, the rich or the dominant groups in general in societies will always say something like, uh, okay, we are, we are rich, but, you know, we are providing you with various services which in the end make inequality in the common interest. So it could be that we provide, uh, you know, in ancient societies, we provide, uh, if you are the warrior class or the nobility, you provide uh, law and order to the rest of society, which is, of course, something very important, especially in very chaotic times. Uh, or if you are the, the, the old religious class or the clergy, you know, you provide uh, spiritual guidance, educational services. And, you know, in societies where educational services or health services are very poor, uh, you know, religious organization and the, the religious class did provide to some extent some of these services. Now in modern societies, you know, especially after the, uh, you know, the French Revolution and after the, the Atlantic Revolution of the late 18th century, in the 19th century, you have less and less of this nobility or, or clergy uh, um, uh, missions uh, justifying their, their dominance over societies, but you have a different kind of justification based on the idea that, uh, you know, the richest group in societies provide, uh, well, first, they still provide stability, you know, the idea that, you know, you, you need to have people at the top who have more property accumulation, because if you start questioning this, you know, where are you going to stop, you know, and that's going to put a complete chaos in society. And also the, the elite starting in the 19th century is, is supposed to provide uh, innovation to provide uh, economic growth, and and this is something certainly that's still very important today in in, in a, a discourse of justification of inequality. And let me say right away that this belief system and 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 justification are always uh, partly right. At least they have always they need to have some minimal level of plausibility. You know, if, so of course the elites 
in every society will tend to exaggerate a little bit how much they bring to the rest of society. And sometimes it's not only a little bit, it can be a lot, but it must have some, you know, their claims must have at least some plausibility uh, for for societies to to accept them and to and to 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 you know to sustain you know if it's completely implausible then you know you have a revolution you have something happening and and the and the system will move to a different inequality regime and to a different set of organization of inequality and so this is this story of sort of learning about Justice, in the end, you know, learning about different ways to structure inequality, which I'm trying to to tell in this book, and so it's it's a little bit of an idealistic view of history in the sense that I stress, you know, the, the, the sort of the sincere part of this belief system and the fact that they, they always have some plausibility. But you know, I'm trying to be not too naive. You know, I, I know at the same time that many of these claims are self-serving. Uh, well, you also mentioned the contradictions in, in these narratives, which, which I found interesting, and that they take different forms in different parts of the world. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So the, the contradictions, yes, there are lots of contradictions which I study in the book, which in the end lead to turning point and lead to a change in regime. Starting with, you know, today's main contradiction about the globalization narrative and market competition narrative uh, is that, you know, this economic regime of competition between countries and, you know, very, uh, you know, sophisticated uh, mobility of capital and goods and services across the, across the world is supposed to uh, benefit uh, you know, the entire population is supposed to lead to prosperity for to all uh, classes. And in practice, in fact, you have a lot of inequality. You have very high and rising inequality in recent decades. And so many uh, people in the middle class or in the, the, the lower socioeconomic groups, you know, feel that this globalization is not working for them. And so that this is sort of the basic contradiction that we have today. If you look at the past, you see similar contradiction leading to change in regime together with other forms of, of um, contradiction, in particular in relation to the international dimension of the inequality regime. So, for instance, the inequality regime that we have until World War I is very much, uh, very much based on the uh, colonial system and the fact that uh, enormous competition between European uh, state powers in order to colonize the world in order to accumulate foreign assets in the rest of the world. And this is going to trigger a competition between these uh, state powers, in particular uh, Germany, France, and, and Britain, which is going to lead to World War I, World War II, and to a complete destruction of the, of the sort of proprietarian uh, international order of 1914. So this is you know, probably the most extreme example of an internal contradiction you can think of, because in effect, it led the world to, uh, to uh, you know, close to complete, uh, complete uh, destruction. Uh, so today's contradiction, you know, are, are less dramatic in a way, but I think we should take them seriously because just like during the first half of the 20th century, you know, these contradictions, if they are not addressed through new, uh, you know, peaceful, democratic uh, institutions and, and narratives and ideology, you know, the vacuum will be filled 
by uh, uh, ideologies stressing identities, you know, just like during the first half of the 20th century. You know, if you don't know how to regulate economic forces, then you will uh, uh, emphasize, uh, you know, local, uh, national uh, identities. You will emphasize, uh, you know, borders, uh, returning to, to uh, you know, very sacralized view of, of borders in order to solve uh, uh, problems, which in practice, you know, it's not going to solve the problem we have to solve. This, this was not the way to solve the problem a century ago, and this is not the way to solve the problem uh, uh, today, you know, especially with the new challenges we have to address in terms of uh, uh, global warming, rising inequality, or, you know, the kind of new challenges that we are just currently facing, which is requiring, obviously, a lot of international cooperation. The problem is that... You know, we have this this ideology of the of the of the market competition as solving every uh, every problem. The ideology of uh, uh, property sacralization. You know, the idea that uh, you know accumulation of property and capital in a few hands can always you know solve the problem we have to solve. You know, this ideology, which was very powerful in the 19th century and until World War One has become very powerful again starting in the 1980s, 1990s, in part due to the fall of Soviet communism, you know, which was another kind of ideology which led to a, to a dramatic failure, of course, and which in a way reinforced a sort of hyper-capitalist ideology, and we still live in this legacy. I mean, of course, the 2008 crisis and possibly this 2020 epidemic uh, have started to, to change the dominant belief system uh, somewhat, but, you know, I think it's still not enough in, in the sense that we still live in an era of, of uh, you know, sort of post-communist uh, era of, of sort of very large disillusion about the possibility of a different economic system than just uh, free market capitalism. So I, I actually think that another economic system is possible, but I think this will require a lot of intellectual uh, political work, you know, to, to which I'm trying to contribute in order to have a sort of new, uh, new hope and new uh, political mobilization uh, in this uh, direction. You, you wrote about the, the great replacement. Can, can you elaborate just for a second on that and then we'll move on? Ethnic identity, uh, yeah, you know, for a long time as part of the, of the system of political cleavage, uh, you know, the United States, for, for obvious reason, you know, after the end of uh, slavery, uh, there was for a long time a, a system of uh, very hard uh, racial segregation. Now, starting in the 1960s, you know, there, there was a civil rights movement, you know, trying to bring uh, more uh, uh, equality between uh, between ethnic groups. But you know, it's clear that the political uh, uh, expression of ethnic identity and slavery, you know, is still is still playing, has always played an important role in a in a country in the U.S. And many observers feel that this has uh, contributed to the lack of, uh, of development of a welfare state in the U.S. comparable to what we have in Europe. Now, in Europe, there used to be much more limited uh, ethnic uh, division within European countries. Uh, so there was huge external division in the colonial system between the colonizer and the colonized countries, but within 
the, the European countries, these ethnic divisions were limited until the 1970s, 1980s. They have become uh, bigger today. I mean, it's still ideology of the Great Replacement is, of course, a complete, uh, you know, exaggeration of, of the magnitude. Uh, it's based on a complete exaggeration of magnitude of this trend. You know, today it's, uh, it's uh, uh, you know, you have uh, about 10% of the population in, in Europe that has uh, family origins outside uh, uh, Europe, uh, you know, in particular in North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa in the case of France, uh, or sometimes coming from uh, Turkey in the case of Germany, or coming from from uh, from South India, uh, or, uh, South Asia and India in the case of Britain. But if you, if you take all these extra-European origin together, you know, there are typically 10% of the population in, in France, Germany, Britain, you know, it's still a, a minor, a very small minority you know, comparable in a way to the African-American minority in the U.S. But this has been, unfortunately, enough to generate, uh, you know, all this new uh, extreme right uh, political movement, in particular in, in France, in my country, but you know, now this is much more general in Europe. And I think this is partly the consequence of the kind of ideological vacuum on, on economic uh, issues, which I was referring to earlier. So, you know, if you keep telling people that there is no uh, uh, other uh, economic system, that, you know, there's only one economic policy that government do to control their borders and to control their identity, then, you know, we should not be surprised that politics is, is becoming more and more uh, a discussion about uh, border control and, and uh, the control of identity. So I think the, the lack of an economic discussion about how to organize the economy, how to reduce inequality in income, in property, in education, between social groups, which will be a way to, you know, to, to show uh, uh, different people uh, with different origins that they have, in fact, a lot in common in order to obtain, you know, better wages or better access to education or better access to... Uh, to property, but if you if you if you abandon indeed you know all these uh, stories about uh, you know replacement and, and identity politics uh, get a lot more uh, a lot more strikes. One of the things that you bring up is uh, you make the case that there's not enough transparency uh, with regard to wealth ownership in the world, and one one of the authors, uh, Jonathan Rothwell, he's an economist at Gallup. He was on the New Books Network recently, and he wrote a book called The Republic of Equals. And and he argues, at least with regard to the U.S. case, that the rising inequality with regard to income, at least, can be traced to the rise of S-corporations and partnerships, basically legal and accounting entities in, in which, you know, professional sectors really take advantage, doctors, lawyers. Uh, CEOs, basically groups that can shape regulation through their lobbying efforts. Does this factor in? I mean, is this part of the transparency issue that you talk about? Yeah, well, that's, a, that's, that's an interesting uh, argument. It's it's not exactly the same argument that I'm making, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, potentially this is, uh, this is complementary. I'm, I'm, I'm very much trusting, you know, in my book, uh, in my work, you know, the illusion of uh, the big data society. You know, we live in this illusion that, you know, because of new technology, we, we have more data than ever before, more transparency than ever before. But in fact, what we realize is that, 
maybe we are in a big data in terms of how much uh, private uh, uh, firms and private monopolies can accumulate uh, information sometimes about our personal life and our personal data. But in terms of government ability to uh, uh, collect information and to, to observe what uh, you need to observe. In fact, we are in an era of big opacity, in particular in terms of wealth ownership. And, you know, it's a political choice that, you know, we, we have created a system of capital mobility where you have a, a almost a sacralized right, you know, to transfer your assets wherever you want without anybody being able to follow you. But, you know, this is not something natural at all. This is a very sophisticated uh, uh, international legal system, a very sophisticated set of international treaties that have made this uh, possible. And, and in the end, this is what I think will have to be changed at some point, you know, if we want to reconcile, you know, the public opinion with globalization, because this is part of what leads to uh, uh, extreme uh, uh, tax competition uh, and to the benefit of the highest uh, wealth uh, income groups. And, and, uh, and this is what and the middle groups and the lower groups who are less mobile uh, end up, uh, you know, paying more and more tax in order to compensate for this uh, tax competition to the, to the benefit of the top. So I think in the end, this is threatening the, the system. It's interesting that this sort of opacity that we have about wealth is also something that we see today, you know, with the uh, epidemic crisis where we suddenly realize that, you know, governments uh, who are supposed to be very sophisticated, you know, in Europe, in the US, uh, they have in fact no information uh, about who is infected, you know, they, they have not the uh, technology and, the, and the, the resources in order to have tests of the population at a large scale. And in fact, uh, the only thing we are able to do, you know, is to, to force people to stay at home, you know, which is really the less sophisticated thing you could, you could do, because in principle, you know, it would be good to collect information about who is infected, have a complete isolation for those who are infected, but, you know, those who are not infected uh, could keep uh, uh, working or doing what they have to do. So, so you know, this, the, the fact that you have technology in itself does not guarantee transparency. You know, what matters is the organization and the collective institution and the rules, and, and in particular, the development of a collective and state capacity to observe uh, inequality in income or wealth or inequality in health and to design the policies uh, in order to, to, to correct for this and to, to offer the appropriate uh, uh, regulation. But you know, the big lesson of history is that Again, this is not technological or economic. This is primarily political, uh, ideological, and institutional. It seems like there's a bit of a, a pushback on, on your analysis from some groups that um, really resist anything to do with taxation. The question is, uh, is their position uh, justified? So is the level of inequality, you know, we are not talking about having complete equality. The question is, how much inequality is useful? And in the case of the U.S., you know, the huge increase in the concentration of, of wealth that we've seen in recent decades, I think is very difficult to justify on the basis of increased uh, innovation or increased economic growth, because in fact, we've not seen this increased economic growth. You know, if, if the growth rate of the U.S. economy had doubled since the time of Reagan, uh, our entire discussion would be very different. 
But this is not the world that we have. In fact, the growth rate of per capita uh, income in the U.S. has been divided by two since the time of Reagan. So I think, you know, it's important that we all have the numbers in mind. You know, between 1950 and 1990, it was the national income per capita was rising at 2.2 percent per year in the United States. Between 1990 and 2020, it's been 1.1. And so here we are comparing very long period of time, you know, 30-year period, 40-year period. So you always have business cycle in all periods, you have crises, you have booms, but when you compare such long period of time and you have a division by two of the growth rate, uh, you know, it, it, it means that the, the idea that by having more inequality, more billionaire, you will stimulate innovation and uh, because of this, you know, very efficient working rich, this is going to benefit to the rest of society. You know, that's an interesting theoretical claim, but, but in practice, it's very hard to substantiate uh, uh, this claim. So I think it's, you know, it's important to look at all the, these pieces of information and, and, and reconsider some of this, uh, this conclusion. Your book is divided into 17 chapters. You've got four parts. Just real quickly, is there a lay of the land in terms of the broad inequality regimes that you could share with our listeners? Well, you know, the book is basically chronological. So, you know, I, I first look at the, you know, the transformation from uh, uh, societies based on the nobility, or clergy, which were more based on, on uh, uh, you know, complementarity between groups, you know, sort of each group bringing something uh, to to uh, uh, to society of, uh, of very different nature, then moving to, you know, proprietarian society in the 19th century, the way they fell in the, in the 20th century between 1914 and 1945, largely because of their, the contradiction I described before, and in particular the international colonial system, which in a way was the, the most extreme dimension of accumulation of property and foreign capital and foreign property, uh, for that matter, uh, until 1914. And then, since, you know, the fall of Soviet communism in the 1990s, I think have led to the entry of a sort of new world, which is not exactly like the 19th century ideology, but as a sort of similar, uh, sometimes almost religious face in property accumulation as uh, the solution to all problems. And I think we are starting to exit, you know, this, uh, this ideology because we realize that, you know, private property is, is a very useful institution as long as, it, you know, it remains of reasonable magnitude. And how do we decide what's the reasonable magnitude of inequality and, and, and how large should the concentration of wealth go? Well, the basic response of my book and my research is to say, well, we have to use history as a guide for the level of inequalities that are useful and, and not useful. And, you know, the big increase in inequality we've seen in recent decades, especially in the US, I think, you know, it's not, has not been very useful in terms of, of, uh, of growth and, and, uh, and, and, and improved living condition for the, for the most of the population. And, you know, therefore we have to adapt. And I think we are starting to adapt our view to this reality. Um, uh, you know, sometimes it takes time, sometimes it takes crisis. But, you know, I think in the long run, the book takes a relatively optimistic uh, outlook in the sense that, you know, there's a long run process toward uh, more equality. 
Uh, we've seen a huge reduction of inequality in the long run, especially over the course of the 20th century. And, and we're still today in much more equal societies than in the 19th century. And I, I think this has been a huge success. This is what has allowed, uh, you know, it has come together with more increased in education, in health, and, and also with increased prosperity. I think historically, Uh, you know, the true source of economic prosperity is uh, education and a certain level of equality in education. And in particular, the source of U.S. prosperity historically has been the fact that the U.S. as a country was uh, an educational leader uh, as compared to Europe in particular. And, and, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, in the 50s, you have almost the entire population in the U.S. going to high school at a time where in Europe or Japan, it's, you know, less than 20 or 30 percent of the generation going to high school. And it was this educational leadership that made the U.S. an economic leader. This has ceased to be the case, partly because of this new ideology starting in the 1980s, 90s, that you know, basically saying that more inequality is always good, and that we don't care too much about uh, equality or educational equality. And, uh, you know, this will change again. You know, I think, uh, you know, that's, that's the main message of the book is that, you know, these, uh, these things uh, should not be taken for uh, as given. Hey, last question for you, Professor. See, yeah. It seems fair to say that for comparative and interdisciplinary social study, uh, you pretty much set the bar with capital in the 21st century. Now you've extended the reach of your analysis by looking at the discourse of justification, and, and that is a society's ideology with, with even more historical data reaching beyond the, the Western world now with capital and ideology. What are you working on now? Uh, well, you know, it took me six years, you know, to, to write Capital and Ideology after the release of Capital in the 21st Century. So please give me a break. You know, I need a little <laughs> more time to... But no, look, I'm certainly going to keep working on, on ideologies and the transformation of uh, uh, political attitude. So in the, in the last part of Capital and Ideology, I show a lot of the research I've been doing in the past two or three years on uh, uh, political attitudes and the changing structure of electorate and the, the rise of what I describe as the Brahmin left uh, and, and merchant right. And, and, and these are issues on which I keep working today with more, uh, and I think, you know, better uh, data on, on the electoral uh, coalition and, and, and looking at more countries again and, and who votes for what and how this changes over time. So, you know, I'm probably going to keep working in this uh, direction. Well, that sounds good. Hey, thanks so much for your time, Professor. Thanks. Bye-bye now.